Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Mark Hamilton with Hamilton Zans, and you can find them and, and their contact information and a bunch of resources on their website. So head over to Hamilton Zans, that's Z-A-N-Z-E.com in order to get some more information here. But Mark has been in this business way longer than, than I have. So this is going to be a great conversation. He's been in the business now for 20 years. He holds $4.3 billion in, specialized, in specializing in multifamily investing. But I think we're going to especially spend some time on the value of 1031 exchanges. So I really appreciate your time here, Mark, and, and really looking forward to learning from your 20 years plus experience. Well, Jack, I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate you inviting me to be on your um, show today. And uh, notwithstanding the kind reference to 20 years, it's actually much worse than that. I've been in the business for 41 years. Holy I've been, cow. Yeah. I've had, uh, this is my 21st year of being partners with Tony Zanz. Uh, we started in 2001 and we're, uh, we we're both mid-career at that point. We weren't old, old dogs then, but we are old dogs now. Sure. And uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've had a really good run, done some good things for ourselves and the people in the organization and a lot of clients. Yeah. Wow. 40 years in, in the business. I, I, what you know now, do you wish you knew back then? You know, that's a really interesting question. You know, we all have a common fantasy that if we could only travel back in the past to a certain day, then we, we'd have the winning lottery numbers and we could, we could buy that lottery ticket and our lives would be different. You know, I've had anybody that's my age has had some ups and downs and, and real estate uh, can, can at times be a little bit like uh, riding the tiger, but um, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't go back. It's been really good for me. I know something different every year, if not more often um, than every year. And certainly your, your perspective evolves as you old, as you age or old, but yeah, no, I, uh, I wouldn't go back. Uh, if I knew then uh, what I know now, um, things would be different. But, uh, you know, every day is, is its own day and the things that come along, come along. And I'm just really delighted and, and, and grateful uh, for the life that I have. And I don't, think I, would, I don't think I would change any of it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just really curious just because, you know, we could spend, I'm sure, an entire episode just talking about how you got into real estate investing and but i'm sure everybody has asked you those type of questions in the past in fact fact if you'd like to know more of mark's background i'd have you direct you to his website i i'm actually more curious really as you know i have a lot of real, real estate investors who are just getting into the sure. business you know they're, they're that's why they listen to these podcasts right is there one thing that you wish you would have known or right when you got started you know, I'll answer the question slightly differently. I'm going to I'm gonna kind of try to uh, choose a point in between your two questions. And uh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just reflect back on an episode. Back in the RTC years, which were the late 80s and early 90s, um, there was a lot of reckless lending, uh, savings and loan lending primarily, that had taken place during that time. And it, it turned into a big mess. 
And uh, the federal government basically swooped in and cleared the decks. And they cleared the decks by shuttering uh, insolvent savings and loans and taking over their balance sheets, taking over their, their assets and their liabilities. And they, they were not set up and they knew it uh, to own real estate. And so uh, it may not have been quite a fire sale. There was a lot of property uh, that got put back on the market uh, that got deleveraged and went down in value uh, when it got taken by the, taken by the federal government, government by the Resolution Trust Corp, which is RTC. And that was a really good time to buy. Uh, you know, Sam Zell uh, bought bought hard and probably long during those years. There were there were good assets that that just couldn't just that just couldn't live with the amount of financing that they had on them, and it dragged it dragged those institutions down. So you know, it would have been fun to be a little further along in my career um, at that point, so that I could really get my arms around some of the RTC stuff. And you know, I went to a, a meeting with a with a banker uh, who's a fellow I still know, um, and he said you should just be you know, you should just be buying trustees, um, you know, buying buying loans before they default. And th- that just sounded like the last thing in the world I, I thought I should do. I, I wouldn't have known how to do it. I didn't feel I wouldn't have felt confident that I that I knew how to get through the foreclosure proceedings and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you do have to stick your neck out um, a little bit. You have to to really I guess it comes down to three things. You have to you have to like the work. You have to be willing to do the work thoroughly every day and some and there are times when you're really gonna have to to work hard and you also have to look for opportunities to think outside the box and that was you know if, if I had known more about what it meant to buy uh, to just basically buy loans um, at that point it, it probably would have been different um, but we've always been on the solidly on the side of being uh, equity investors uh, you know we, we, we pool equity we contribute our own equity and 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 very generally it goes into partnerships that we form. And then we go in and we, and we buy the assets with that equity and 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 uh, obtain uh, new conventional debt. So we're we're fairly we're fairly mainstream in terms of our uh, equity and financing strategies. But I do think you have to you have to know how to look outside the box and you have to be willing uh, to look outside the box. And there there are certainly things that 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 we look for now um, that I wouldn't have known uh, to look for twenty or thirty or thirty five years ago. Sure. Well, could you give us an example? Like, what are you looking for now where you wouldn't have before? Well, you know, buying loans would, would, be, would be one thing. And, and, and to this day, we don't do that. But when Hamilton Zan started, we were, it was me and Tony and one other person. Uh, the first property we bought was a, a 16-unit building in, a, in, a, in an up-and-coming part of Oakland, California. And uh, this was right after 9-11, and we bought it for a million one fifty, and we're happy to get started. And then the next year was bigger, and the following year was bigger, uh, and so on. But we've we've kept our we've kept our we've kept our eyes open to to different operating platforms. And after about ten years, we uh, put together our own uh, property management company. After seven years, we uh, made our first uh, office building investment, and then eventually grew that into a platform. After about 15 years, we uh, put together our own uh, commercial property management company. And then there are some other, there are some other smaller organizations that we've put together. Um, so, so being open-minded about opportunities and platforms is certainly, is certainly something you have to do. Um, but also last year um, in December, after working on it for probably nine months, uh, we closed a very large, uh, the acquisition of a very large portfolio in 
the Bay Area uh, that had gone into bankruptcy, um, and it was it was uh, it was a real chore. Um, I, I I mostly played consigliere and sounding board. Um, the team worked really hard, and we bought uh, thirty nine apartment communities and twenty one suburban office buildings, and that's something we just wouldn't have even dreamed of uh, five years ago. Uh, five years ago, we we started a uh, DST Delaware Statutory Trust. Uh, initiative to go alongside our other 1031 businesses. Uh, we've formed our own uh, captive insurance company. Uh, we've done uh, 10 small funds and we just did our, our first uh, discretionary fund that was uh, larger, uh, materially larger than any, any of the others before. And um, so you have to be open-minded to, to doing new things. And, you know, once upon a time, I was uh, the tip of the spear in terms of doing new things in my own little way. And, and that, uh, you know, the invention uh, that goes on in our office for the most part these days is driven by, by other senior members of the team. So you know, it's, it sounds like you're, you're spurring off a lot of other businesses out of your core business. You know, you talked about not only collecting these, you know, these assets, but you have the property management, commercial property management, you mentioned insurance, you're buying buying paper is were these all out of you you saw a need and you were just trying to fill those gaps or or did you were these like uh you you specifically like you mentioned you saw the opportunity and you took it it's the second yeah we really saw the opportunity i mean everything in this business if you're an investor is driven by an opportunity that presents itself that is that suits the uh investment objectives of an investor at that point in time uh, you know, there are lots of people that buy uh, triple net uh, long-term single-tenant properties. The returns on that are usually going to be more pedestrian, but it suits a need, right? There are people who buy land and build. It's not going to be pedestrian at all. And uh, the returns are going to be at least prospectively material, very significant, but you take more risk, right? So real estate investors come in different shapes and sizes. They buy land, they build, they do subdivisions, they buy triple net retail, they buy apartments, they buy mobile home parks, they buy shopping centers, they buy industrial, they buy office, they buy high rises, they buy suburban. And so the, the temperament and the basic objectives are, are going to run with the investor uh, but every investor is going to have an opportunity that they're looking for. And it may be as modest as getting a three or 4% return for 20 years, but having security, uh, you know, having a high credit tenant uh, like a bank or a McDonald's or a Walgreens, uh, and, and, and they're willing to accept a, a more modest distributable cash flow, but they may want it for estate. Uh, state purposes. They may want it for continuity of income purposes. They may want it for completing uh, a tax deferred exchange. So um, I do think it all comes back to opportunity. There are some people who are inventive, you know, uh, despite the ups and downs, uh, some would look at uh, at WeWork, for example, uh, which went out and, and leased just mountains of space nationwide. And I mean, you can pretty clear that you could pretty clearly tell them by looking at their strategy, they were looking for a need and they, they had an idea of a need that they could fill in the universe. And, you know, despite the turbulence, they did fill a need. Uh, but, but I think by and large, people who are professional real estate investors are looking for an opportunity. Sure. Well, you know, this kind of leads me to my next questions is that, you know, you, you mentioned 
that a lot of people start off in those single family homes. And, and frankly, a lot of what you're doing, it's taking you 40 year career. If, well, it, it doesn't sound like the, this portfolio has been accumulated in over the past 20, but it's almost more aspirational. You know, they, they, they see it almost as a big monopoly game. You buy a bunch of single family homes and then you trade them in to get that multifamily. Do you think that is the the right strategy for a lot of people or should they consider just jumping right into multifamily investing? That's Jack, that's a really great question. And and again, it's it's going to come back uh, to the person. Uh, there are lots of ways to invest in real estate. You can buy a home, you're a real estate investor. You can buy a home that you want to renovate and, and sell and then do a 1031 exchange. You can buy these days, a, a common strategy is, is buying high-end condos and then putting them into Airbnb pools. So there, there's many different ways that you can start investing. You know, if you want to buy a small apartment building with a friend who's a, a carpenter or a plumber or, or a CPA or what have you and, and, and have a plan uh, for that investment, you can certainly do it. Uh, I would say that the first thing to do is to, is, is to have a sense of uh, your long-term goals and to have a sense of uh, the amount of patience that you have. You know, the first property, um, the per- first property that I bought, uh, my wife and I bought a property in, in San Francisco in, a, in, a, in 1985 in a part of town that was pretty rough. It had been much rougher. Uh, before we bought this property, this property was close to being a fright. You know, the first time my mother-in-law saw it, she she broke into tears because it was going to need a lot of work. And and you know, I was probably naive, um, but it worked out. Uh, and you know, we worked hard. We did. My wife and I did a lot of the work ourselves, uh, nights and weekends. Um, but we caught the bug, right? And and kind of you know. Once you once you've been once you've been bitten by the bug, it's it's, it's hard to, to leave it behind. But you know, two units, and then and then my my boss at the time saw what we were doing, uh, and was interested in it, and it kind of sponsoring us as an angel investor. And then we went out and bought uh, a three unit building, a three unit building, and a four unit building, and and those had good outcomes. Uh, back then, uh, San Francisco was still kind of rugged. It hadn't become San Francisco of I mean, it was decades away from the San Francisco of Facebook. You know, in Genentech and Apple, it was it was it was rugged. But we became uh, partners with another married couple from her hometown who were doing the same thing here. We we threw our lot in uh, together and formed a small company, and we're we're just really working hard doing doing transactions. And uh, you know, so slowly climbing the mountain, uh, you have to know how you're if you're going to do this. You need to be able to spend a lot of time and have an income at the same time. And and we were able to make income and still do it. Uh, because there was opportunity there. Uh, you know, a lot of the opportunities have, have gone by. It's, it's harder to get into the market now. The prospective returns um, are going to be lower uh, because it's just so competitive. There's so much capital out there. And I think there's fewer, you know, almost every stone gets turned over every day. So there's, there's fewer, uh, there's less low-hanging fruit than there used to be. And there's an ocean of capital out there competing for it. But, uh, you know, I think if you're a patient investor uh, and you, you want to harness a 1031 exchange, you can, you, can, you can invest in an asset any number of ways. You can buy a REIT stock. The REITs certainly use the 1031 um, as they see fit. You can buy, and that can be publicly traded or, or, or private um, REIT stock. 
Uh, you can buy, you can go into a small syndication or partnership with other people, you know, perhaps as few as one or two other people, but you can also throw your lot in um, with other professional investors, such as we are. And, you know, you just have to be, I think at this point in time, one of the things that's called for in addition to hard work is patience. Uh, we, when, when Tony and I uh, became partners, after our first five or six years, we could see that we were holding assets for 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 about a, for about three and a half years. I think our average hold back then was was about forty two months. So you go, you can, you raise the capital, you go and you make the acquisition, you do the asset management, the project management, you do the heavy lifting, put it back on the market and sell it and go look for your next opportunity. Well, if you if you took the so that, let's just say that that was that was kind of the time cycle of. Uh, the investments we made in the first five years. If you take the time, if, if you look at a time cycle for for uh, the transact the properties we've acquired in the last five years, the the arc of ownership or the period of ownership will probably be much longer on those. It'll be seven to ten years for sure. Uh, we do have assets that we've that we really like that we've you know we've kept for ten or fifteen years. Uh, but I think shorter time horizons or shorter durations of ownership were uh, certainly in, propelled in part by falling interest rates. And I, I don't know where interest rates have to go, but up from here. So we're not going to get that, you know, we're not going to get the same kind of cap rate compression going forward that we've, that we've seen over the last 20 years. Um, and, and again, there's a huge amount of capital out there. But if you can, if you can buy something or invest in something that's going to be profitable, that's going to pay you some return as you go, that has every good reason. That has every good justification for for being profitable, and and you're going to enjoy the benefit of a of a six to eight year ride, and you're young and, and can and can turn that over a number of times during your you know your remaining investment years. You have an opportunity to grow that capital and defer the taxes on it for as much as thirty or forty years. So, well, you know, you, you can actually, if you go to your website, and I'm going to point everybody there again, HamiltonZans.com, and I'm going to, like I said, I'll, it'll be in the show notes. But you can actually see a lot of what you're talking about, the the roots of of your history, because you're still looking for value added. You have a value added approach to your multifamily investing today, right? You bet, and to our suburban office as well. And um, you know, the biggest the biggest engine, the biggest driver. And our business has always been value add. Um, but I have some partnerships um, that are still ongoing after 30 years. And, and any one of those has, has probably owned on a 30-year partnership. That partnership has probably been invested in, in at least five or six different transactions. And, and, it's been, and, and when we've moved, when we've sold and then repurchased, we've been able to uh, defer the capital gains for the investors by, by doing a new, a new acquisition. And, and, you know, we have, you know, my history uh, goes back before Tony and I became partners and, and a lot of those old partnerships are still, are still in our system. So, um, you know, you have to have somebody who's going to mind the store and there's, there's a lot of care and feeding that goes into apartments. Uh, You know, one of the old adages about apartments is the three T's, which are toilets, trash, and tenants. Um, And that's, you know, that's shorthand for just saying there's going to be a lot of work to do. Um, But you have to have somebody who's going to be able to mind the store and put in the care and feeding and, and allow you to still have an income uh, to support yourself. So, you know, unless you have, unless you can do it while you're moonlighting, or unless you have a spouse um, that is content to be the primary breadwinner, 
uh, it's probably going to be hard to give up your salary and, and do this unless you're already pretty, you know, of independent means. Well, let's let's go to the uh, 1031 exchange then, because I know I know that you kind of specialize in that a little bit and how you can and in the syndication and the partnerships that you that you uh, take advantage of here to to continue to accumulate your your portfolio. So, you know, we use the term 1031 exchange quite a bit, but would you mind taking a moment to just kind of explain to people what it is and maybe the tax benefits associated with it? Of course. If if an investor buys a property or an investment group, buys a property for a million dollars and they pool, let's say they pool $300,000 of capital and take financing of $700,000 and they're their financing package, uh, their financial resources allow them uh, the funds to to work on a property uh, and add value and increase some value. And then they sell that, let's say they sell that five years later for a million five, at least a million five net. Maybe they sell it for a million six and then have commissions and costs of sale and the like to bring it down to a million five. By five years, your loan is probably amortized, you know, it's probably amortized down some Maybe instead of seven hundred thousand, it's six hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. And your your basis, the investment basis that a, that an investor has, is the two hundred fifty thousand dollars that that excuse me, the three hundred thousand dollars of capital that was invested, adjusted for uh, depreciation and distributions. Um, but let's hold depreciation and distributions out of it for a moment and just assume it's in a vacuum that you. That you uh, invested three hundred thousand in cash, you took out a seven hundred thousand dollar sale event, and you come out with proceeds of a million five, and you retire your financing of six hundred seventy five thousand dollars, and then you have eight hundred twenty five thousand dollars in proceeds that can be distributed uh, from your closer or your title company, depending on how they do it in in your state. Uh, if you direct the closer or title company to send those funds to an exchange accommodator, and, and again, we're, we're for the moment we're pretending it's eight hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, then the exchange accommodator can sit on that money. You're not allowed to take what's called constructive receipt of the funds. That if you take, if you have that money sent to you, you will not be able to do a ten thirty-one. You'll be determined to have. Uh, sold the property rather than exchanged it, and you'll be taxed. You'll be taxed uh, at capital gains rate and recapture. But if you domicile those funds, the eight twenty five with an exchange accommodator, then you have forty five days from the time that you sold your. They call it relinquished property. Uh, in shorthand, we call it the down leg. You have forty five days from the time you close your sale to locate one, generally speaking, one to three properties that you would love, that you would, that you would content yourself to purchase. And then you do what's called designate. And designating is completing a form that your exchange accommodator will provide you. And you list the particulars of the properties that you're looking at. And so within 45 days, you basically constructively told the IRS, I'm completing my designation by by designating these three properties. And then from there, you have 135 days to close a purchase on one of those three properties. And uh, your your mandate uh, for the sake of a full deferral 
of capital gains taxes is to reinvest all of your proceeds, in this case, $825,000, and to you can add cash to that, but it's $825,000 or more, and to replace your financing, which was $675,000 or more. And it's not uncommon for people to upsize both of those amounts, um, you might you might well if it's a partnership, you might well have the the wherewithal to to invest a million dollars, you know, to to top off your eight twenty five with another one hundred seventy five thousand dollars, and have a million dollars of capital to reinvest. And then it's also very common for people to upsize their debt. So you might go in in, in two steps, basically, or two and a half steps. You might go from 300,000 in capital, 700,000 in financing, purchase a property for a million bucks, sell it for a million five, reinvest the proceeds, uh, secure new financing, upsize them both, and, and discover that now you've bought a $3 million asset. That kind of, that kind of footwork is not unusual. The math of every diff- every exchange is going to be different, but generally it's an opportunity to take a, uh, whatever the sum of capital is that, that one or more investors have. Uh, invest it, make it produce an event, use financing as you see fit. Um, we, we always believe that it's best to use intermediate leverage. We don't, we're not believers in severe leverage and we're not believers in under leverage. Um, but, you know, 65 to 70% leverage is a good, is a good spot to land. And, you know, after two or three successful cycles, you might be, you, you might be sitting on, on, one or more buildings that are now worth five to six million dollars. It's not going to happen in, you know, it's not going to happen in a few years, but it could happen in 10. And, and all that prospective capital gain will be deferred. Different states have different capital gains rates. Uh, I believe the federal capital gains rate for long-term gains is 20%, but then the IRS will also, also charge you for what's called recapture which is um, depreciation. You've been using the depreciation to shelter your income um, and defer the gain on that. And then when you liquidate, you have to pay the government back for the, the benefits of the tax shelter that you've gotten. So it's quite efficient. It's, it's a viable long-term strategy. And um, it, it can be hard uh, to get away from because if you've, if, you've been, if you've done successive exchanges, you know, a string of exchanges like we've done with some of our partnerships, um, the gains and recapture uh, can be significant. The capital gains tax and recapture can be significant. Um, and it's generally going to be more severe the longer you've held um, an asset. But if wherever you live, if you have a good, uh, you have a good real estate agent um, and you have uh, a good closer or title or escrow company, uh, they're going to be able to, to educate you to the basic footsteps. Uh, of getting an exchange done. And you just want to make sure to get everything done in time. And you want to be aware that if you choose to invest less than all of your equity proceeds or pull out less than all of your, or replace less than all of your financing, uh, you will be taxed on any shortage or any any downward difference between the amount of of capital that you have or any financing that you need to secure. And that gets that's called boot be just like, you know, just like footwear and you're going to be taxed at uh, capital gains rates and or recapture rates. So it pays to, to fully reinvest and to uh, replace all or more of the financing. Sure. sure. So 
you you mentioned locate one to three properties. Would this also be the case regarding partnerships and syndications, like that, so people could invest in in projects such as yours? Same same rules. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's you know for all intents and purposes, it doesn't matter if it's an individual or a partnership or a corporate a corporate holder. Uh, I believe publicly traded REITs, you know, use the strategy just as we do, just as mom and pop investors do. And there are some other nuances. There are other there are other sets of rules that you can follow. You can do what's called a concurrent closing, which means uh, have your your sale property in escrow or under contract, and have your acquisition property uh, in escrow or under contract, and close them at the same time. And so that's a simultaneous closing. Uh, and if you do that, you, you really, the need of doing the other paperwork for the most part goes away. Um, you should you should get guidance on that. Um, you should talk to your CPA or tax lawyer or, or whomever to, to, to be sure that a simultaneous closing is going to obviate the need for, for any and all of the rest of it. You can also uh, simply acquire a property within your designation period. Uh, if you sell a property on January 1st, and buy a property on February 1st, you've probably met your designation burden. And then there are other ways, there, there are other, other parts of the rules that may allow you to designate more than three properties, but it also comes with a burden, it can come with a burden of responsibility to close more than one of them. Sure. Yeah. So, so as you hold these properties in this REIT and you're buying and sell properties with the 1031 exchange capital does that trigger a buy and sell event for the for that person or how does that piece work I'm sorry Jack can you can you say that one more time please when that person does a 1031 exchange into your into your your REIT or your syndication or partnership and you then buy and then sell a property that you were holding does that cause a a an event for that buyer that they have to go through the whole 1031 exchange process again, or it's a, a great question. If you were, if you invested cash with us uh, and let's just go back to that hypothetical of the $1 million bill. Um, let's say that you and I, and a few other people uh, pool $300,000 of capital. You know, we can all be, we can all be equals. Um, if we're all, if it's kind of a one for all and all for one approach, or there might be a project sponsor involved. Um, which is the role that we play that we organize and and manage the entirety of the process. But if you're a cash investor and, and let's just pretend there are 10 of us and we each put in 30 grand, your $30,000 is now the inside is now inside of a partnership. The partnership owns, you own shares in the partnership, you own an interest in the partnership, um, the partnership owns the property. And so when we sell that property, all 10 of those people um, certainly have the right uh, as long as they're all still getting along, uh, to go out and do another, another uh, to acquire another property uh, together, which, which they often do, and and that uh, that meets the test of an exchange again, as long as they manage the details and, and administrative aspects of it. If if for us, if people, you know, it, it's been great, right? I'm happy to have gotten the uh, gotten the, the economic benefit of it. It felt it felt good. I I liked the income. I liked the growth. But I really have other things I want to do with my money. So, so can I can I cash out? Uh, with us, we we always cash out anybody that wants to get out when we sell a property. It's very easy to identify to put a bright light on it and put a bright line down and, and just precisely identify you know their their allocated share of 
of the equity and and any profits that we've made. So, you know, people can get out of that. Uh, there are a couple of different, we, we, this this will get a little more complicated and I'll try to keep it simple, but the long and the short of it is that you want to, to mitigate, to minimize tax exposure. Uh, you, you would w- probably want to have the remaining nine people um, collectively buy out the one person or, or any one of the nine people could buy out that person. And that's, that sends that person on their way, keeps the group together. It keeps from uh, having to, to, to dissolve your entity. Um, there are also ways to, to allocate funds uh, out, out of escrow and, and um, distribute, distribute funds out so that, that an investor can get out. We don't favor that, that, that approach, but you can do it. And so the answer to your question is if we're all investors together, yes, we're all, we're all doing 1031 exchanges together. And, and as long as we want to do them, then we're just going down the road. If you and I and, and one other person went out and, and bought, a, bought a property together, uh, and we didn't want to form a partnership, we would most likely go into what's called a tenants of common situation. And so what that means is your name's on title, my name's on title, there's another person involved and, and his or her name is on title. And if you look at the grant deed, our names are right there. And it says that you own an undivided interest as a tenant in common with Mark, an undivided interest as a tenant in common with this other person. And it's just terminology that means that, that we all own real estate together, but we don't own shares at that point. Uh, under the law and under the tax code, we uh, an undivided interest is a an interest in a piece of real estate. It's not an interest in the partnership. And so if we did the if we did the same transaction the same way, and the three of us each put in a hundred thousand dollars, and uh, we go downhill and we to the same place, and so the same place is we now have a we we've now had a sale event that lands us that lands us retiring our six hundred seventy five thousand dollar loan, and uh, and uh, produces for us the benefit of now being in uh, conceivably in receipt of eight hundred twenty five thousand dollars. And so um, that eight hundred twenty-five thousand dollars is owned equally by the three of us, as long as we went as went in as equal uh, co-tenants. And I think I, I think I can still divide eight twenty-five by three and come out with uh, two seventy-five. So now each of us, uh, instead of having a hundred thousand dollars of invested capital, we all have two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars in ten in, in an invested capital. And what the tenancy and common structure does. Uh, is it allows anyone in that in that crossroads to again make a decision on what they want to do uh, forward going, and it could be Jack that you and I decide that we want that we have something else that we want to do, but our our third investor now wants to go a different way and they want to go out buy a condo and put it in an Airbnb pool or something. So then you and I uh, turn around, we go back out and find something. We have uh, $550,000 of invested cap or, or equity capital. And maybe we, you know, maybe we top it off with another 100 each and, and we now have $750,000 of capital. And so we go out and we find something for somewhere, somewhere between two and a, two and a half million dollars. We go through the same footsteps. We uh, domicile our funds with an exchange accommodator. Uh, we go out and we arrange uh, a purchase of a different asset. Uh, we put our money in escrow. We line up our financing. We do our designation uh, within our 45 days. We do our acquisition within another 135 days. And now we're owners of a new property. And let's just say it's valued at $2,250,000. And, and off we go again. 
And, you know, and another five years goes by or something. And, and now you have something you want to do, or, or I have something I want to do. And, but the value of the property has gone up to three and a half million dollars. And when we paid, when we paid two million two fifty, we took out a million and a half dollar loan. And so now we, and that's been paid down to maybe a million four. So now we have, uh, sale proceeds, gross proceeds at, at three million five. We pay off our loan. And now we're sitting on, excuse me, two million one of equity capital. And again, at that point in time, either you or I can choose to do our own thing. We can we can re-up and go out and do it again. We can go our separate ways. Uh, we can come to a sponsor uh, like Hamilton Zans and and invest with Hamilton Zans. Uh, historically, we've done a lot of tenancy and common structures, but in the last five years, uh, we've done a lot of, de- we're, we're doing more Delaware statutory trust structures. They're easier to manage and um, they're, they're a more pedestrian structure for, for investors because the money just goes into a trust and everybody goes into the same trust. Nobody's on title. The trust is on title. Uh, whereas in a tenancy and common structure, everybody's on title and everybody's on the loan. And I think that that a lot of investors see the Delaware statutory trust as a more conservative structure. So, you know, you could take your, if, if we now have 2 million one of capital and each one of us has, so each one of us has a, has a million 50 and we each have a $700,000 uh, debt replacement burden. You know, we can meet that by reacquiring either on our own or together or with a sponsor, we can put it into a Delaware statutory trust. And you just, you know, your CPA is going to want to make sure uh, that you you reinvest all of your capital that you received net of costs from the sale. And that all of that capital goes into the reacquisition of another property. There are some other costs that are considered real estate costs like brokerage commissions and the like. Uh, consulting fees. Um, some, some, there are some other costs that can be considered to be real estate purchase costs uh, because they're 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 essential to the transaction. But effectively, uh, you would need to to reinvest your million one in in new real estate, and you would need to be out. You would need to receive a debt allocation of at least seven hundred thousand dollars, and you can upsize both of those numbers. You can add more capital. You can take out more financing, but you usually cannot take those numbers down. If you take those numbers lower, you will generally have tax exposure. Sure. Well, this this was fantastic, uh, Mark. I really appreciate you giving this. This is like the first time we've actually taken a moment and basically laid it out from beginning to end how this ten, how a ten thirty one exchange actually really works. And I appreciate you giving those examples in those sure. situations because that really kind of makes things more concrete. Again. Head over to HamiltonZans.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. Uh, Mark, this was a great conversation. You're welcome back anytime. I hope you'll take me up well, on that. I appreciate that. it. I hope you'll invite me back. Uh, and, I've, I've appreciated it. But uh, before I let you go, I typically ask, is there a question you wished I would have asked you today? Well, you know, I'm going to turn that on you slightly and say, what um, what two questions should a real estate investor ask? If they're going to invest with somebody like us, if they're going to invest with a sponsor, or what are the two biggest risks that you see? And and I always feel that you can cover a lot of risks with insurance, with by sound vendor selection, uh, by basically good due diligence and good 
good acquisition decision. But there, there are really two things that are that are that require vigilance uh, to manage against in terms of risk. And when people ask me what are the biggest risks of investing uh, in real estate, I always say interest rates, interest rate movement, because when interest rates go up, the value of assets goes down. Um, it's really pretty much that simple. And when interest rates go down, the value of assets go up. And so we've been, you know, we've been riding a 40-year wave of, of falling interest rates, and it's been really good for, for many of us who have assets. It's, it's, it's propelled values. And so interest rates will always be a risk. And then I think if you're gonna if you're gonna invest on your own, you the risk is are you really suited to it? You know, you really need to understand uh, what's gonna go. Uh, with the real estate, you know what what work, what uh, what hours of commitment every month is it going to require, and are you suited to it? And if you're going to invest with a sponsor, uh, you know you want to do your due diligence on them. You want to make sure they practice what they preach and that they have a great track record, and that people that you know have done business with them. Uh, but you also want to make sure that the uh, the sponsor has a long term plan. And so when, when I when I meet with investors um, and people don't ask those questions, I ask those questions for them. I say, you know, you should ask what the biggest risk is, you know, what I think the biggest risks are. And you should ask us about a long term plan um, because real estate is a long term investment. And if you're not suited to long term investments with limitations on liquidity, uh, you should look at other other real estate types. But I thought you answered all, all the you asked all the right questions. Well, I appreciate that. I, and uh, I, like I said, I really appreciate your time. Again, it is hamiltonzans.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but uh, really, really enjoyed our conversation, Mark. And, and like I said, I hope you'll come back sometime. I did too. Thank you. Have me back. I'd love to talk. You bet. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.